of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. No matter where you are going on your next travels, Get Your Guide offers great ways to connect with your destination and make memories with locally vetted, expertly curated experiences. Things just as examples. You could go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. You could take a tour of Pike Place Market in Seattle with a chef. There's a London Royal Parks and Palaces tour. All kinds of options wherever you are going. So discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware. Alienware.com slash deals. That's Alienware.com slash deals. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, so historian Robert Friedel wrote a book about zippers back in 1994. I recently read. And a line in the introduction to that book really struck me, which was, while zippers are used everywhere, they are almost never necessary. And I recoiled initially. I was like, what are you trying? We need zippers everywhere. But really, you could find an alternate way to do almost everything that a zipper does. But they're so convenient and handy that, of course, they have become ubiquitous throughout everyone's wardrobes. But without trying to throw anyone under the bus, that quote is kind of how I feel about most write-ups about the invention of the zipper, because it's one of those things I, of course, sew a lot, so I have done a lot of thinking about zippers and how they work and wonder where they came from. But if you look at any write-up, if you just, you know, do an internet search and say, who invented the zipper, you get two, maybe three paragraphs, and it's really, really glossing over a lot of stuff. 
Um, there's a lot of story here. So I thought today might be a good time to delve into the oddly arduous creation of this simple thing that we almost all have on our clothes and our handbags and our luggage, etc. Zippers. Now that I think about it, they are in so many locations. Yes. <laughs> besides just my jeans. Uh, in 1851, Elias Howe, who we talked about forever ago in our sewing machine episode, filed for a patent on an automatic continuous clothing closure. If you look at the patent sketches, it really looks like a zipper, but it's also a little misleading. His device, which he described as a series of clasps united by a connecting cord, was really more like a spiral drawstring that was pre-laced through clasps on either side of that opening that needed to be closed. So when you pulled on the drawstring, it pulled the two sides together and closed it up. If you've ever seen a spiral-laced corset, it's kind of the same idea, but on a smaller scale. You may recall that at one point in his career, Elias Howe traveled to England to make machines specifically intended for corset making. That was just a few years before he filed this patent, so it's possible that he was inspired by that connection. We don't really know. Howe didn't pursue the development of this, though, because he became too busy working on sewing machines. But to really get into zippers and their origins, we have to talk about a few other men. And the first of those is Whitcomb L. Judson, who was born in Chicago, Illinois, on March 7, 1843. We don't have a whole lot of details about his personal life. We have virtually none about his youth. We know that while he was still a teenager, he enlisted with the Union Army, and he was part of the Illinois Infantry Regiment in the U.S. Civil War. He earned an undergraduate degree at Knox College, a liberal arts college in Galesburg, Illinois. And his details from there are pretty sparse until he appears in a Minneapolis, Minnesota directory in 1886. And in that directory, his profession is simply listed as traveling agent, i.e. like a traveling salesman, with no indication as to who his employer was. His story can be pieced together a bit through his business relationship with another man, Harry Earl. In 1888, Earl started his own company, Earl Manufacturing Company, and Whitcomb was an employee, working initially as a salesman. Before founding that company, Harry Earl had worked for Pitts Agricultural Works, so it's been theorized that's where the two men met as employees In any case, once he was working for Harry Earl, Whitcomb Judson started working not just on sales, but on inventions. And his first big effort in invention was in designing a pneumatic street railway. He actually received a total of 14 patents related to the project over the course of just a few years. But he didn't revolutionize urban to suburban transportation as he had hoped, because the system just didn't really work that well. And by the time he did start to really make progress on it, electric lines had surpassed what he had hoped to do. But that whole effort, including starting a company called Judson Pneumatic Street Railway Company, gave him a lot of experience in the ins and outs of trying to innovate in a technological space. In 1893, Whitcomb Judson invented an item called a clasp locker. This was intended to be used in shoes, although Judson was clear that it could be applied to many things that needed closures, including mailbags and gloves. This was essentially a set of hooks and eyes that had a slider that moved the hooks into position to fasten them, although exactly how this whole thing is supposed to have worked is a little unclear. 
The description in the patent mentions clasps which have, quote, underreaching and overlapping projections or lips at their forward ends, which prevent the engagement or disengagement of the hook portions of the clasps, except when thrown upward, so that the parts stand at an angle to each other of about 90 degrees. I can't really visualize what that means. It's a little confusing. <laughs> Even looking at diagrams, I was like, Whitcomb what? <laughs> it was listed in Scientific American as one of the patents issued on August 29th. And it was actually two patents because Judson had refined his idea and submitted a second patent application before the first one was granted. But the two patents ended up being issued on the same day. We don't know what sparked this idea or what inspired his design. He had moved to Chicago at this time from New York, where he and Earl had been working on the pneumatic travel system. We also don't know why he moved. The two men remained close friends and business associates, though. Yeah, they had seemed so all in on trying to connect, like, the more populated parts of New York to more rural parts with this travel thing. And then, as I think they realized it wasn't going to happen, Whitcomb moved on. Uh, He did take his fastener to the World's Fair in Chicago that year to show it to the world. It did not really get a lot of buzz there, but Whitcomb Judson felt that there was potential for his fastener. And in 1894, he and Harry Earle founded the Universal Fastener Company, along with several investors. Just prior to the company being officially founded, Judson filed two more patent applications for his fastener, one for a more effective slider and one for the fasteners on each side of the closure. Prior to this, the teeth of the fastener were items that were not permanently affixed to the item being closed. They were individual pieces that slid kind of through the buttonholes. But this new patent called for permanently attached clasps and offered a number of ways that they might work to fit together, including alternating from side to side as they fit together with what Judson called pintles and sockets. This is starting to sound a lot more like a zipper. In 1895, the first manufacture efforts of Universal Fastener Company were made in a workshop owned by the Bryden Horseshoe Company. The first working version, and working goes in air quotes because it apparently did not work, at least not consistently, first working versions were made affixed to mailbags. If the company could get a government contract, it could fund a larger effort to move into the home consumer goods market, The Postal Service did place an order for 20 bags that had Judson's closure. There were never any additional orders placed after that, though. That's like the saddest trombone part of this story for me. They had to have felt so excited that they had a government order, and then it was like, no, no thanks, that's fine. No, these are... These are done. These are not really working for us. Uh, As Universal Fastener struggled, Harry Earle struck a deal for the company to be acquired by the Elyria Fastener Company in Elyria, Ohio. But Whitcomb Judson had reached a plateau where his proclivities as an inventor couldn't keep up with the knowledge that he needed to actually manufacture these designs, and things went pretty badly. The entire Elyria company ended up being liquidated in 1901, and at that point, Harry Earle gained the rights to the Universal Fastener patents. So Earle once again found investors and launched the Fastener Manufacturing and Machine Company. 
this new iteration of their business venture, which was based in New Jersey, aggressively advertised the merits of Judson's closure invention, which they simply called the fastener. They advertised it in print and touted a wider variety of uses than had even been suggested before. They said this could go on everything from corsets to leggings to shoes and boots. In 1904, the company reorged under the name Automatic Hook and Eye Company. This reflected another change in the design of the fastener, which then went by the new name of the Security Fastener. That's a C-C-U-R-I-T-Y spelling, which is an awkward brand name in my opinion. Uh, at this point, the advertising leaned into the women's clothing market, and most of the print material focused on how much easier it was going to be to fasten skirt plackets. That seems like they were on to something, and they were, but the fastener still needed some work, and we will talk about its problems after we pause for a quick sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Are you someone who's developed a keen awareness of life's nonsense and found their way around it? Someone who zigs when the rest of the world zags? Someone who doesn't put up with life's yada yada? If you're nodding your head, yes, then it might be time to check out Metro by T-Mobile. At Metro, there's not a yada yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada yada yada. Outsmarting yada yada means things like avoiding those surprise subscriptions. I definitely ordered a one-time Valentine present 
recently. And then I got an email thanking me for joining their subscription program. Not a thing I had even realized I was doing. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada yada. Helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. While things were moving forward for Judson's invention, there were still some pretty obvious problems. The security fasteners sometimes jammed up. Also, sewists needed instructions on how to stitch them into garments. And worst of all, in my opinion, if you wanted to launder the garment, you had to remove the fastener, wash it, and then reinstall that fastener once the skirt or dress was clean. Because while they did have a coating, they were still prone to rust. Additionally, these fasteners were expensive. They went to market at 35 cents, at a time when a basic skirt was about 77 cents in the Sears Roebuck catalog. Dressmakers and resellers could get bulk discounts, but even so, a closure for a garment costing one quarter to one half of the value of the overall article of clothing was just a lot. Like, for comparison, that would be like purchasing a pair of buttonfly jeans today for $80 and then having a company tell you that your already perfectly functioning garment would cost another $30 to modernize to a new closure. Most people would skip that offer, and in the early 1900s, most people did just that. By 1906, Harry Earl had left the company. Whitcomb Judson soon extricated himself from the business as well. These two men had been trying to manufacture and market Judson's fastener for more than a decade at that point. With several restarts, it was just not happening. Judson had also moved on creatively to working on inventions related to the new technology of automobiles, he was working on an early combustion engine and had decided to move to Michigan to be near his son. Skirt closures were just no longer holding his attention. The automatic hook and eye company continued without the two men who had catalyzed its founding, though. And that same year that they left, a new figure entered the picture who was key to the development of the zipper. And that was Gideon Sundback. 
Otto Friedrich Gideon Sundbeck was born in Småland, Sweden, on April 24, 1880. Details about his early life are a little sparse. We know he studied engineering at Bingen and received his degree in 1903. Once he finished schooling, he moved briefly to Germany before deciding to head to the U.S., and he was in a good position to do so. The family had money, so moving to a new country wasn't really that much of a gamble. Yeah, one of the books that I read was, like, sometimes you will see people acting like this is, you know, the classic, like, poor immigrant story trying to find a new life. And it's like, no, he was a wealthy kid who thought, like, oh, I can go make my fortune here in this other place. Not quite the same. Uh, He arrived in North America in 1905 and headed for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he was employed as a tracer at Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company. That job is exactly what it sounds like. He was tracing engineering drawings and schematics to make copies. But he was soon promoted to a draftsman position, and he worked in that role for about a year. Through various contacts, someone mentioned Sunback to Frank Russell in 1906. At the time, Russell was the president of Automatic Hook and Eye Company. The company executive had realized that what they needed to make the security fastener really work in a way that was reliable and affordable was an engineer. And so Automatic recruited Sunbeck. Reading about this offer and move, it seems almost like people who had looked at Sunbeck's qualifications and his job at Westinghouse are left scratching their heads about why they would take a position at this floundering company in Hoboken with a fundamentally flawed product. His background made that kind of a question mark decision. Uh, He did take the job, though, possibly just for the challenge. There's also been speculation that part of that decision for the move was because he had met a young woman named Elvira Aronson on his first visit to Hoboken when he toured the factory and that he had been quite taken with her, and those two did eventually marry. And we know that because her father was involved in Automatic as an executive, Elvira Aronson was around the company a lot. She actually worked in the factory, and she sometimes modeled garments that the company's closures were sewn into. And these two started seeing each other almost immediately after Sundback moved to New Jersey. And he had Elvira, who he called Vira, help him perfect his English, which was by all accounts already quite good. There are some people that were like, you don't actually need English lessons. (laughs) So if he had been drawn to the job because of the potential to spend time with her, that absolutely worked out. But the reasoning for his move from Westinghouse is still speculation. We really don't know if he moved to be with her or not. The timing of his hire meant that Sunback was joining Automatic Hook and Eye just as Harry Earl and Whitcomb Judson were leaving. There was a brief period of overlap. Gideon later described Whitcomb as a man who invented something every night, but soon he was gone, and Sunback settled in to try to understand Judson's invention and where it was going wrong. And he quickly identified a few issues. One, when a woman was wearing a skirt with a security closure on it, the fastener would often pop open if she moved in a way that applied any tension across it. He realized that if just one of the interlocking pieces was moved askew through pretty much more normal motion of the wearer, the whole thing would come undone. It's obviously not good <laughs> at all. This doesn't work. <laughs> oh, Gideon's first pass at a solution was something he called a placo fastener. This was more flexible so that a person could bend or twist in a normal day-to-day way without popping the whole thing apart. 
This went to market in 1908, but the more flexible eyes that Sunback had designed were also bulkier. They could be rendered entirely useless forever if any fabric got caught in them, and then from a production standpoint, they were expensive, in part because once a placo had come off the production line, workers had to open and close it repeatedly to prime it. So it'd like wear down any ridges that would cause it to stick. It's not very efficient process. No, that's a lot of man hours just to get one functioning closure out the door. Still, they marketed the heck out of that placo fastener, and one of the big points in the sales pitch was that at last a lady could fasten her garments at the back of the waist securely with no help. But they needed help sewing them into clothes. It seemed that everyone had trouble with that step. Complaints became so frequent that the company started offering customers the option to send their garments in with their placo fastener, which would then be stitched in at the factory and then sent back to that customer ready to wear. That seems like a huge money pit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we need a sewing division to fix all these problems. The ongoing issues once again led to financial problems for American Hook and I, and Sunback found himself not only negotiating with creditors on behalf of the company, but also expanding their product line and taking side projects just to keep cash coming in. Things became bad enough that the company could not afford to pay Sunback and instead gave him all the patent rights to the various fasteners that the company had. This is another thing that leaves a lot of people going, why was this man who had an engineering degree and could have gone almost anywhere he wanted so invested in this company that he would literally take side jobs and be like, yeah, I'll I'll do this engineering as a a freelance contractor for you so that I can give that money to my boss. Like, (laughs) it's a little weird. Uh, But by 1909, Sunback, it turned out, probably because of that, was really running the company. And he did briefly manage to turn around the money situation there. He also sought to expand the company into international markets. He and his, at this point, father-in-law, Peter Aronson, made a move to sell their fasteners in France as Le Femme Tout Américain, or American Close-All, but that effort had sputtered out by 1912. In the time that the French sales efforts were happening, Gideon, who had married Elvira Aronson in 1909, welcomed a child. This was a daughter named Ruth Margit. But though they should have been joyous, this was not a happy occasion. Elvira died not long after Ruth's birth, and Gideon was just devastated, so much so that he could not envision himself raising a child. When Elvira died, the Aronsons were in Europe, and Gideon had no personal support system in Hoboken, so Ruth was sent to Sweden, where Sunback's mother took care of her throughout her childhood. Yeah, there's not a lot of information on their relationship. It appears they did not really reunite until she was at least a teenager. And then he was left kind of explaining, like, no, I was grieving. Not a lot beyond that of what happened with them. Yeah, I read a thing recently about, like, how common this has been in points in history, especially when, like, uh, a mother dies with an infant and the father is totally at a loss for what to do, like, particularly in this era. And so so a different person entirely would wind up raising the child. Yeah, I suspect had Elvira's parents still been in New Jersey and not working overseas, that would have been a, a means to keep the family a little closer together, but it just wasn't. 
But by the time of Elvira's death and Ruth's birth, Whitcomb Judson had also died. He had moved as planned to Muskegon, Michigan, and he died there on December 7th, 1909, at the age of 63. So he never got to see the success that eventually came from other inventors building on his idea. His work in the early automotive industry, however, became very profitable, and that ensured that his son, who carried on his father's work in that field, became very, very wealthy. In the years that Sunback had been with American Hook and I, other inventors had gotten the idea that they could improve on Judson's design and patent their own slide fastener. A woman named Ida Josephine Calhoun had come up with a design that was very similar to Judson's, but had a slider that separated into two parts to help with some of the jamming problems. Frank Canfield had come up with a slide fastener that eliminated hooks and eyes and instead used a ball and socket closure. Yeah, those were both interesting, didn't ever go to market. But the first version of the closure that came closest to Sundback's, and which led to some legal issues down the road, was one designed by a woman from Zurich, Switzerland, named Katerina Kuhn-Moos. She developed her fastener with a partner named Henri Forster. Kuhn-Moos and Forster got patents for their design in Great Britain, France, and Germany. But though the European-developed closure worked and was pretty darn close to what we'd easily recognize as a zipper today, it never went into production, and those patents were abandoned. We'll talk about the breakthrough that led to the modern zipper after we pause for a quick word from the sponsors that keep the show going. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding Finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Are you someone who's developed a keen awareness of life's nonsense and found their way around it? 
Someone who zigs when the rest of the world zags. Someone who doesn't put up with life's yada yada. If you're nodding your head yes, then it might be time to check out Metro by T-Mobile. At Metro, there's not a yada yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada yada yada. Outsmarting yada yada means things like avoiding those surprise subscriptions. I definitely ordered a one-time Valentine present recently. And then I got an email thanking me for joining their subscription program. Not a thing I had even realized I was doing. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. While still grieving his wife, Sundback worked on a new idea which involved small interlocking teeth and was very much what we would recognize as a zipper. This change in design direction had been catalyzed by a deep frustration that he had experienced with trying to make the security fastener and its various problems actually work. He wrote of this shift, quote, I was fed up with hooks and eyes, rusting metal, and everything pertaining to the fastener. The complaints, as far as our salesmen were concerned, were, here's a scratchy fastener. These hooks are awfully rough and rusted. I decided to turn in an entirely different direction and away from hooks and eyes and get away from the metallic appearance, make something attractive to the wearer. And starting in 1912, he started to do a lot more experimenting with the design. In October of that year, he applied for a new patent. And this version used a completely different approach. One side had a row of clamps, and the other side had a raised cord. So when the slider moved up, it closed the clamps onto the cord. When the slider moved down, it opened the clamps, and the cord edge was released. This worked a lot better than any of the previous designs that Judson or Sunback had worked on. It was consistent, it was quiet, it sure looked a lot nicer than the security fastener, and it was flexible with no tendency to pop open when a wearer moved around. Sunback called it the hookless fastener, not super catchy, but it also conveyed that a main concern about previous fasteners was out of the picture. There was, however, a problem, or more accurately, two. 
when the factory was back in financial hot water. It had to shut down completely temporarily because operational funds for it just did not exist. And Sunback took advantage of the downtime to test and refine the hookless fastener. That actually revealed the second problem. The cording side of it wore out way too fast for it to be a reliable closure. The cotton used in the cording, that, which was just what was available at the time, just could not stand up to the opening and closing of the clamps. Ultimately, this version of the fastener never went into production. But it did reinvigorate Sunback and other executives at American Hook and I, so much so that plans were set in motion to move the factory and reestablish the company as the hookless fastener company. And the decision was made to move to Meadville, Pennsylvania, in part just to give everybody a fresh start. When Lewis Walker, a company executive who was a significant driving force behind the business aspects of the various fasteners we've talked about and their development, when he was asked by journalists why the company had chosen to start anew in Meadville, he gave an interesting answer. He mentioned the good community and the good schools and the clean air and water and, quote, minimum of labor troubles. By autumn of 1913, the first fasteners were rolling off the production line in Meadville, but they were not the new hookless models. They were the old Placo fasteners the company had made in New Jersey. The new design just wasn't ready because of the wear problem Sunback had identified, but they had to sell something, so the company fell back to the old design. The new fastener had been kept under wraps, so nobody outside of a small circle in the company was any the wiser of this. Yeah, and even then, it took a long time for Sunback, apparently, to own up to the fact that, like, that that corded fastener was not going to last. But it didn't take long for him to make the necessary adjustments to his design that led to a successful product. So successful that it introduced a closure into the world that remains largely unchanged in design. While Sundback claimed that he lost sleep as he thought about endless possible solutions, we don't actually know how he landed at the version of his fastener that would launch an entire industry. But the important element here was the introduction of what we would call zipper teeth today. Zipper teeth, which are often called scoops on the manufacturing side, have a little bump on one side and a little divot on the other. When you stack these teeth in an alternating pattern, so one tooth's bump lands in the divot of a tooth on the opposite side, and you have a lot of them together, you get a surprisingly sturdy closure. This is all described in detail in Sunback's patent, which he filed in August of 1914, Why he waited until then is unknown. He had the design figured out at the end of 1913. But because Sundback didn't really document his process, there has always loomed one question about his fastener breakthrough. Did he know about the one Katerina Kuhn-Moose had designed and patented in Europe in 1911? Because the scoop and bump were present in her non-produced design. This was enough of a concern that even though that Kuhn Moose and Forster design was not patented in the U.S., the U.S. Patent Office, who kept abreast of information on patents around the world, wanted to talk to Sundback about his patent application for what he called a separable fastener because they wanted to make sure he had not copied that European patent. The big distinction was that the design by Kuhn Moose had featured round bumps and scoops, Sunbacks had rectangular divots and bumps. He had determined that round would allow too much movement of the teeth. They would swivel and pop apart. So he came up with a shape 
to prevent that swiveling motion. So once the teeth were stacked together, they flexed as a unit, but not at each touch point. And this discussion of this difference with the patent office was something that continued on for several years. Gideon Sundback and Hookless Fastener Company actually made their case regarding the different shaping of the connector points repeatedly. They even had versions made in their factory that strictly followed the coon moose design just so they could show that it was very clear that it would not work properly. Simultaneously, as Sundback and his company defended their patent application, other very similar patent applications were filed in the United States, further prolonging the process. Ultimately, the Sundback design was granted a patent, but it took several years and an awful lot of legal back and forth. That patent was finally issued in March of 1917, so almost three years after he filed. For the Canadian rights, Sundback patented the hookless fastener under his own name, not the companies that had been agreed to with the company, and he also established the Lightning Fastener Company in Canada to manufacture separable fasteners there. The first large-scale use of Sundback's invention was in the military. World War I uniforms and pack gear made use of the new fastener, but although it saved time and was reliable, it took a long time to catch on with the general population. Zippers were still struggling to be recognized for their utility value. That ease with which they enabled a person to get dressed or undressed led to a bit of panic about the moral decline they might catalyze. They found a use as a closure for tobacco pouches when Loctite started buying bulk for the pouches they made, but the garment market was still pretty elusive. But a consumer garment market usage of the separable fastener catapulted Sunback's fastener forward in the 1920s. You might have noticed that we have not discussed the origin of the word zipper and when it started to be used, but it is tied to this 1920s product. Sundback did not come up with the word. It was coined by the B.F. Goodrich Company, because in 1923, B.F. Goodrich started using the hookless fastener in galoshes, and the story goes that an employee there came up with the onomatopoetic name, which the company registered as a trademark in 1925. There are some variations to that who actually decided they should call it a zipper, but it's generally agreed that an employee of B.F. Goodrich was the one that came up with it. Lightning Fastener Company challenged the Goodrich trademark in 1931. That case ended up being dismissed, but Goodrich was eventually granted exclusive use of the name Zipper Boots, not the word zipper on its own. As the 1930s wore on, the zipper finally started to lose its negative connotations as high-profile people started to embrace this new closure. Advertising started touting zippers as a helpful closure for children's clothing because it made them more able to manage getting dressed on their own. The Prince of Wales started opting for zippers instead of buttons in his trousers in 1934, further improving the image of the zipper. Elsa Schiaparelli, who we talked about in our uh, virtual live show, was one of the first fashion designers to start using zippers. And by the late 1930s in France, most designers were using them. And as France goes, so goes the world when it comes to fashion. Uh, It was Lightning Fastener Company in St. Catharines, Ontario, that first went all in on producing Sundback's separable fastener in 1937. And when we say all in, what we mean is that it built the first factory that was exclusively intended to manufacture zippers. Prior to that, it had always been like, we're working it into another space. Uh, Sundback also designed the machinery that was used for zipper production at that plant. 
By the time World War II was over, the zipper was ubiquitous. Through a series of name changes and acquisitions, the company Sunback worked for had evolved into Talon, which continues to exist today. By the end of the 1950s, Talon was turning out 500 million zippers a year. Levi's first garment to incorporate zippers was a pair of overalls that they sold in 1954. That was also the year that Gideon Sundback died of a heart condition. He had remained in Meadville, Pennsylvania for the rest of his life, although he frequently visited Canada and the factory in St. Catharines. Sundback lived long enough to see the beginning of his invention's widespread acceptance, although he may never have dreamed of the way that it would become so completely ingrained in everyday life that people rarely even give it much thought. He was buried in Meadville's Greendale Cemetery. And because we know you're probably wondering if you've ever looked at a zipper pull and seen the letters YKK and wondered what they mean, here's the scoop. It is an abbreviation for Yoshida Kogyo Kibushi Kikaisha. That's one of the companies that dominates the market today. So YKK, or Yoshida Company Limited, was founded in 1934 by Tadao Yoshida. Today, it dominates the zipper market. It makes more than 1.5 billion zippers each year. That's billion with a B. That's in more than 70 countries around the globe. Yoshida Company Limited achieved its success in the zipper market by carefully designing every aspect, not just of their product, but of their supply chain, Everything from smelting brass to creating the boxes that the product is shipped in is done under the company's umbrella. Zippers. Yeah. Zippers. Uh, Tracy, I'm still working through the pile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big pile. Stuff. Uh-huh. Of stuff for our... Um, our various listener mail. And I, um, like I said, I am now hitting things that are very old, but uh, some of them are very charming. So I wanted to talk about, in this case, two that are from our same listener who has sent us many cards and notes over the years, and that is our listener, Chip. But Chip at Halloween, and uh, you'll forgive me, I honestly am not sure which Halloween this was, if this was 2020 or 2021, but sent us an amazing. Haunted Mansion pop-up Halloween card. Cool. Which is, like, dreamy. That's great. Um, d- Very, very much in my rabies zone. Uh, and Chip writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, Happy October and Happy Halloween. Pandemic or no pandemic, my Halloween spirits are high, and I know yours are too. Your episodes about people of the spiritualist movement are my favorite, so I loved your Madame Blavatsky episode. I, too, love a good seance. Rumor has it that she knew, or at least met, past episode subject, the Count of Saint-Germain. True or not, the idea that the Count is connected to yet another episode subject is a hoot. As for this Haunted Mansion pop-up card, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was the perfect card for the two of you. I hope you're able to enjoy the changing of the leaves, cider, spooky stories, and everything else about this time of year that brings a smile to your faces. And in case no one has actually said it, thank you for staying on the air, despite the challenges of the times we are in. Stay safe and have a very happy Halloween. I will say this, I enjoy all those things year-round. It's always Halloween time for me. Mm -hmm. As we record this, it's the middle of July, which means I am ramping up my Halloween rabies for the year. Yeah. (laughs) Because it is my very favorite. And then I also have another card from Chip that's a Thanksgiving card. And he wrote, uh, Dear Holly and Tracy, congratulations, we've made it this far. I know you probably won't get this for a while because you aren't in the office due to the pandemic. And I could send an email instead, but I just love taking the time to send something tangible. Somehow your episodes have only gotten more exciting and interesting during the pandemic. 
Your Halloween episodes were a highlight of my October, and your Helen Von Tossig and Vivian Thomas were every bit as captivating. I'm a registered nurse and have worked in cardiac care units for 10 years around the country. I've had many a patient who were born with congenital cardiac conditions, and your episodes on the pioneers of infant cardiac surgery touched me greatly. And this is a Thanksgiving card, so it's kind of a double. We're getting some bookends of chip cards. Uh, But I wanted to make sure we read that since it talked about an episode you did the primary research on. And also, I want to say thank you to Chip for working in medicine because it's hard and nurses are miracles in my book. Um, And also, more Halloween is coming very soon. I'm very excited. (laughs) If you would like to write to us, as Chip mentioned, we're not in the office and our office is moving. So don't send us anything physical because... yeah. I don't even know if the new office can handle it. I don't uh, think it can. We're moving into a much smaller space. So I'm thinking we might have to cut off those. As much as I love getting treats from people, yeah, it will probably never arrive if you send us something. And I don't even have an address for it. Yet. Yeah. We've had a couple people ask recently, like, hey, I can't find your address. And we are literally in between spaces right now. Like, Holly and I aren't really working in the office at all, but, like, the, the office has moved out of the old space. Yes. The new space is not ready for us yet. So, like, there's not an address at this moment. We don't exist in physical space. Uh, So, yes, just keep that in mind. Uh, If you had intention to send us something, you might want to direct that energy elsewhere because I don't want it to go to waste. Uh, But you can email us at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet... Now's a great time to do so. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever it is that you're listening to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade 
lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.